Holy Father of grace and forgiveness, we thank you, O Lord, for this day. We pray that you would plant in us, Father, uh, your spirit of truth and righteousness, but also your spirit of forgiveness and grace, that not only would we accept your forgiveness and grace, but we would offer it to others also. Father, we pray this day that as we come and we celebrate this gospel feast together, that, Lord, in the midst of a world that very often uh, there is the bitterness of loss and grief, uh, we see hatred abounding in the hearts of men and women everywhere. And, Father, uh, we also see the light of your kingdom, and we see the light of those people who have your love, uh, the love that, that uh, brought your son to the cross for us. They have their, that love in their hearts, and they reach out and they care for others. Father, we pray that we would, uh, this day, be those who recommit ourselves as we come around the table to being everything that Jesus called us to be, to be salt and to be light, Father, to be those who carry the good news of the kingdom into the world. Father, we pray that as we come to this feast together, we would come not only receiving your forgiveness, but also extending that forgiveness to others around us. Father, may we truly be a people who deserve to wear the name of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, and amen. This morning's scripture is Mark chapter 14, verses 16 through 26. So the disciples set out and went to the city and found everything as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover meal. When it was evening, he came with the twelve, and when they had taken their places and were eating, Jesus said, Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be distressed and to say to and to say to him one after another, Surely not I. He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping his bread into the bowl with me. For the Son of Man, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that one by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that one not to have been born. While they were eating, he took a loaf of bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, and all of them drank from it. And he said to them, This is, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I tell you, I will never drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it, in the new, drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung the hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Clint. And uh, uh, this particular uh, passage of Scripture is Mark's version. There are uh, versions uh, in, in Mark, Matthew, and Luke of the Last Supper. Uh, John also has a version that it's, uh, distinctively tells it from a different perspective. Uh, but all the same elements are together. And as I was thinking this week about the word bittersweet that you see up there, that's the title of the sermon, I thought about how... Um, how that word, that one particular word, can help us to understand a lot about our relationship with God, uh, that fallenness that we experience. Michael Card said we were created to live in a garden with God, and every day we wake up to a desert of sin. And there's, there's truth in that. Some people say, well, that's awful extreme. I think the world's a beautiful place, and it certainly isn't a desert here. But if we were 
to examine everything that's happening around us, we would see that in many parts of the world, just as there are food deserts, you know these food deserts they talk about, which are communities that don't have uh, maybe uh, an abundance of grocery stores or, or where they can get vegetables or healthy foods. They have to go, you know, there may be a 7-Eleven or a gas station that's selling food, but they have to go many, many miles to get good, decent food. And sometimes that's the way we feel in this world. We're in environments and we're around people and we are in place. Places where it seems there isn't of that really good food. You know, the name of aisle seven across the street uh, was given in part to to represent the idea that within life there is a place where you can go to get the the, the bread of life. You can go to get water that will uh, replenish and bring new life into you. And that's uh, that's Jesus Christ talks about himself as the bread of life. He talks about those who drink from him will never thirst. And so we gave it the name Isle 7 to say, because it was originally a grocery store, you can come here and you can find here the bread of life. And uh, But we go through many places and many environments in this world where it doesn't seem that uh, uh, that God's light is shining. And it's bitter. Sin is at its very root bitter. Uh, the story of the creation of the world is sweet until sin enters in and brings in the bitterness. The story of the uh, children of Israel leaving Egypt is a sweet story of being freed, having chains broken, leaving Egypt to go into the land of milk and honey and to for the first time in generations to be able to forge their own fate. And yet, as they go forth, they begin to rebel, to doubt, to fear, to sin. And so they end up wandering in the wilderness. Bitterness enters into the experience. And so if you sit down with the Passover meal, you're going to have different foods. Some are intentionally uh, salty. Some are intentionally sweet. Some are intentionally bitter. And they're to represent the different aspects of life where, that we live in a world where there is bitterness. We live in a world where you have to uh, live by the salt of your brow, that you have to labor. We live in a world uh, where sometimes there's, there's sweet. But even when we experience the sweet in this world, there's always the sense of the bitter not being far behind. Go to the next screen there. I see Rosemary here this morning. Rosemary, it's good to see you visiting with us. She's an old Old parishioner in the sense of a parishioner who, a previous parishioner, not an old parishioner like the rest of you guys. Okay. Um, But uh, I just did this very simple chart to show that the word bittersweet represents that middle place where the bitter and the sweet come together. And then a lot of us live over in that part of the bitter. We gravitate toward the bitter. We're the pessimist. We're the person who can take the most wonderful moment and f- find some reason to drag everybody down with it. You know, you, you, you have somebody who gets up here and sings and everything, and you say, wasn't that wonderful? And they say, I've seen better. Ain't like it used to be in this church. We used to have people who sing rounds or, you know, you know, circles around that person, and, and this preacher, he don't know a darn thing what he's talking about. And they're just those people who are going to take you down and take you down. I had one person this morning, we ended the service five minutes early this morning. You people believe in miracles? Yes, you believe in miracles, okay? And the one person who has always bemoaned the fact that the services go five or ten minutes long, especially on communion Sundays, was very disturbed. 
Okay? So he complains if it goes long, and then he thought something was wrong with me. Are you okay? What's wrong? You know? So, so, uh, so he's living over in the bitter. Not all the time, though. He can be a sweet guy. So, uh, so, but a lot of people gravitate towards there. There are other people who gravitate towards the sweetness of life. They're always going to see the sweet things and the good, which isn't a bad thing, obviously. It can be, though, if you ignore the bitterness, if you ignore the people who are living in those areas and in those places in the world where the bitter dominates life. And you need to reach out and bring some of the sweetness back into that. You need to be the sweet and sour pork at the Chinese restaurant that brings the, the sweet into the sour, right? We like that. It's, it's, you know, I could use lots of food illustrations here. But you understand what I'm saying is that the world, even though Christ has come, even though we've been freed from our sin by the cross, there is still the bitter here. And, the spit, and, and some of us still gravitate toward that bitter. Now, the question that I'm going to talk about this morning uh, as, as we uh, think about the Last Supper is, how then are we to live in this life of the bitter and the sweet? How are we to react? How are we to live out God's call in our lives? And how did Jesus do that here in this uh, Last Supper? How do we see evidence of what he's doing? And I'm just going to take a couple moments here to look at that. I've lost my glasses, by the way. I couldn't see them, so they're you know, but I think I can read this, but you help me out if I, if I get a little mixed up here. So uh, it said, uh, you know, that that evening Jesus arrived with the twelve. This is in Mark 14, the scripture that Clint just, uh, just read. And during the meal, Jesus said, I assure you that one of you will betray me, someone eating with me. Jesus has just thrown out a bomb, you know, right into the midst of his disciples. I mean, you remember through much of the Gospels, that they're, they're excited about the coming kingdom. They have different opinions as to the nature of that kingdom, how it will come into reality. And Judas especially seems, you know, a lot of people think his motivation in betraying Jesus was to force the hand of Jesus to do something. That if he could get Jesus confronted with armed guards to arrest him, that Jesus would have to put that arm out and like one of the, uh, you know, heroes in the movies that we have, just a, a power blast will come out of that arm and he'll destroy them all and the revolution will begin. A lot of people feel that Judas was trying to precipitate, to, to ignite the, revo- the revolution of the kingdom of God. But it says that they were deeply saddened, the disciples gathered together, and they asked him one by one, it's not me, is it? You know, we used to do a play, Rosemary is at the church, the congregation, we used to have an Easter play, and it was, and it was called, uh, uh, Am I the One? Or I'm trying to think, huh? Is it I? Is it I, Lord? Is it I? I should know it, I was in it, you know. And, uh, uh, but is it I, Lord? Am I the one? Who will betray you? And it goes around and each of the disciples kind of tells their story. And then ask that question. And it comes back, of course, on the congregation. Could it be any of us? And any of us at any given time will be given the opportunity in life to betray Jesus, to turn away from him, to do what Judas did. So it's kind of puts you in that place. But it says they were deeply saddened. And when it tells you in the scriptures that someone is deeply saddened, this is a deep sadness. If you go back into the original Greek, this is, a, this is a sadness that just has torn uh, uh, their very souls apart. Uh, Jesus answered, it's one of the twelve, one who is dip, dipping bread with me into this bowl. 
So they would take the bread, dip it into the bowl. The human one, it says here, or the, uh, the son of man, is the way it will be in some translations, goes to his death, not as it is written, uh, just as it is written about him. That's interesting. And it's uh, something I think that's so important for us to, to understand in this world of the bitter and the sweet. A lot of times people think that uh, God, when they become a Christian, when they take on the name of Jesus Christ, when they place their faith on, in him, that he's just going to remove all of the bitter. It's just all going to disappear. And uh, then when things don't get any better, when life is still the same as it was before, they begin to lose faith. And they say, well, what's this about? I thought that when I put, became a Christian, put my faith in God, that my paycheck was going to go up. I thought that uh, uh, my, my wife was going to uh, be 30 years younger. And I thought everything was just going to transform and be, you know, just, it was just going to be better. But it doesn't seem, in fact, sometimes for people who become Christians, it actually seems to get worse. Life becomes more bitter. Problems arise. What is this about, Lord? I thought that this was supposed to be better. And it's interesting here that Jesus says, just as it is written. This is going to happen just as it is written. And in Luke, in the story of the walk to Emmaus, when Jesus meets up with a couple of his disciples who don't recognize him, and he begins to share from the scriptures the things that were to happen to the Son of Man. You see, they're confused by the crucifixion. They're confused by what has happened to Jesus. We thought he might be the one, they said. We had hoped he would be the one to deliver us. And now are they, there are these confusing rumors that, that, may, that he's risen from the dead, but, you know, we don't know what to make of all this, and we're confused. It says, he opened the word to them and explained to them from the Scriptures that this had to happen the way it happened. And here Jesus says to them, this is happening because it is written that this is to happen. In other words, you disciples are not reading the scriptures. You don't know the scriptures. You're not enlightened in the scriptures. And so you don't understand. And so everything that happens here takes you by surprise. And so folks, when we become Christians... And we take on the assumption that from now on, everything is going to be on that sweet end of the stick. That's not what the Bible says. And if Jesus was with us, he says, it's happening just the way it's written. Read your Bibles. You see, the children of Israel go out of Egypt, but they don't get right into the promised land, the land of milk and honey. Their problems are just beginning. They continue to rebel. They, They continue to sin. And, and many times, if, as we look through, through Christian history, there were people who were martyrs, who go to the stake to be burned alive, who are in, in gruesome and horrible ways tortured for the sake of Christ, who never deny Christ and go singing praises to God. Why? Because they know the Word. And they know that what the Word says is that when we become part of the kingdom of God as Christians in terms of how the outside world views it, our lives are, you know, we have the same bitter stuff and we have the same sweet stuff going on. But what is the difference? The difference is that in the dark valleys, God walks with you. The difference is, in that storm that's knocking your house down, you're on a firm foundation. The difference is that God is with you through all these bitter times. And you can have hope and you can have assurance 
that God is there. That is the difference. The outward circumstances don't change. What changes in, is in the inside, within you, where God's spirit now dwells. And you look and you say, you know, there was a time when if somebody had done that to me, I would have hit them. There's a time when if somebody had come up to me and asked me for some help, I would say, go help yourself. But I don't, I can't do that anymore. There's something in me that has changed. And so you change. The circumstances remain the same. You know, uh, this world, to just get back to a moment, if you think about it, even the sweet, we manage to bring the bitter into it. Uh, we're experts at that. How many of you can tell me who won the Super Bowl three years ago? Seriously, if somebody knows, right off. Isn't that amazing? It's wrong. Okay. It's the Redskins. Okay. <laughs> I live in a different reality. Okay. Uh, Wayne back there, he lives in the West Virginia, wins the college championship every year, reality and all too. Yes. So we got one person here. And, you know, a lot of us might have thought, because, oh, I think the Patriots, they've won some, so maybe it was them. But most of us, we say this is the highest achievement in the sports world in America, along with the uh, World Series champs, who I'm not going to ask you last year, because you know it's Boston, right? But who was it the year before? Houston. Okay, we got one. Had to be a coach, you know, former coach here, but uh, uh, Houston, you got to really think it through. So what I'm getting at is the minute you've achieved that highest thing, nobody thinks much of you if you don't win it the next year or the next year or the next year. There's sort of a bitterness that comes into winning things because now people expect you to keep winning. And when you don't, they dump on you. Who's getting dumped on this year in the world of baseball? Boston. You see? They're not defending. Yeah, that's a good. Some of y'all like that. Yeah, Wayne likes that. But they're getting dumped on for that. I've already had people say to me, uh, alert me to the fact that I think it's in about five, six weeks, Old Dominion's going to be playing football against Virginia Tech. Well, Old Dominion had one of the greatest upsets in football history last year, beating Virginia Tech. Okay, that was a sweet thing, right? But now, well, for me, it was. But now people are saying it as if they're guaranteed to lose this year to Virginia Tech, and that's going to be a very, very bitter experience for me, you know, if that happens. Not really. Not as bitter as it was for you guys last year, you tech people, because you were expected to win. But you see, what I'm saying is that in life, even the greatest of our achievements oftentimes come with a little side salad of bitterness, there's, there's, there's things that come into that. You get that great job you've always wanted for, and all of a sudden the pressure is on you, and all of a sudden you don't have time for your kids, and you're talking there's Life is a mix of the bitter and the sweet. But the supper that we are about to share together, the Lord's Supper, is the greatest example of how God took the bitter and turned it into the sweetness of victory. How God took something that was so bitter that the disciples in no way could figure out how this was going to turn out for the good. They could not see where the good was in this. Even though the scriptures, Isaiah, uh, in two different places in in, in Isaiah, he goes into great detail about how the Messiah is going to be beaten and tortured and killed. But they were blinded to that. 
because all they wanted to see in Jesus was the sweetness of the victory and being part of that. And they couldn't in any way conceive that there was going to be a bitterness in this. You know, when we come to this table, it is a place not just to remember Jesus. In the church I grew up in, it was a memorial. It was a place you came to remember what he did. But we come with the expectation of what Christ is still doing and is going to do. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. We come believing that there is a power here that we receive by God's grace that we can't receive in any other way. That we come here understanding things in a way that we can't understand in any other way. This is Jesus' gift to us to strengthen us. The church I grew up in had had communion every week. Uh, John Wesley had communion uh, three times at least a week. A good Catholic has goes to Mass every day to share in the communion service. And what I've heard in Methodists, well, we used to do it every three months, and I thought that was enough. Or you talk to a Baptist, we do it every six months. I, we think that's enough. You know, the old, um, uh, it loses its specialness if you do it too often. That's why I only kiss my wife once a year. Okay. But uh, Jesus gave us a gift, and it's as if we had gotten that dream car, but we're only going to take it out to drive it on occasion. Whereas in reality, we should, be, we should be in that car every day, and we should be coming to the Lord's table more often. Now, I'm not going to make any changes, folks, to say, okay, we're going to have daily communion here, but I think we do undervalue what happens at the table here. I looked it up the other day. There's an app. There's an app for everything. And uh, let me see if I can get the numbers here. I put in my birth date. I put in my gender. I was a male. Now I'm probably going to start getting something in the mail somehow through this. But uh, as of that day, it was around Wednesday. In my lifetime, I had taken 508,509,675 breaths. There's a reason I'm bringing this out to you as we're talking about the bitter things of life and the sweet things of life. I have had 2,440,846,440 heartbeats. And how many of those did I ever stop and thank God for that breath, for that heartbeat, for this amazing set of lungs, this amazing heart that he's given me that is capable of doing that over and over and over. Hidden beneath much of the bitterness that we see, there is a wonderful thing happening. There is a God who every day is blessing us in so many ways, and we don't always see it, and we certainly seldom worship God for it, thank him for it, show any sense of appreciation. So remember this, folks. As we come to the table this morning, This is a gift of God. This is a breath. This is the heartbeat of Jesus. And he gives it to you as a gift so you can make it through this world. And know that even as you travel through it, God is with you in the darkest valley. God is walking with you every step of the way. And he will bring you home. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of that sweet glory divine. I added a word in there, but that's, that's what she meant by that.
that we may not have the full uh, full uh, taste of it here, but we have a foretaste of the glory that God has prepared for us. And amen. Amen. Uh, before we left in the first service, I uh, wanted to make one, mat, one last example for us uh, to, about how the bitter and the sweet mix into this world. How many people have ever had a child to graduate from school? Sweet or bitter? There's sweet, but then you're going to have to pay for college maybe, okay? <laughs> or just the fact that your child is growing up. Uh, whether or not they're leaving the nest or not. If they leave the nest, it's more separation. So there's that sweetness. And all. Uh, there are so many examples as I thought about that. Weddings, bittersweet. If you're paying for the wedding, very bitter. Uh, but there's also, again, a sense of a child is going on to another step, another degree of separation and so forth. And I just was looking at all these life experiences that everything in them, if we, if we can't accept... Sometimes the bitter, those bitter parts of it, then uh, and understand that we have to take them with the grace of God, and we have to realize that in each of those steps, those bittersweet steps, there is the opportunity for us to grow, and for those around us to see God's grace in us. So as we leave this place this morning, may the grace of God always be evident in our speech and in our actions, and may people see His love living through us in the bitterest of times and in the sweetest of times. May our anchor always be Jesus Christ. Go in his grace and peace, and amen.